Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 163. This week's guest is Paul Bauer. Paul has been on the podcast previously, way back in February 2019. Paul is now the head of physical performance at Huddersfield Town. So part of the podcast, we actually talked about the differences in his role because he was at Huddersfield previously when we recorded the podcast before in a different role and has progressed through to his current role with the first team. So we talked about how his career has looked previously before joining Huddersfield, but also um, the last few years since we last chatted on the podcast. We spoke about some of the differences in the skills that he's needed in this role as well, and how that links in with some of the different responsibilities in this role too. We talked about working in a club-wide structure we talked about players transition from a B team to first team and we also touched on academy up to first team as well. And then just some of the great work that's going on at Huddersfield with some of the PhD students, the, the applied research that's going on up there too. Um, and I know we spoke about it in the podcast, but I also spoke about before we started recording, they're doing some great, great work up there, some really top research. And I know Paul will be sharing some of it soon. So um, keep an eye out for that and some of the work that some of the practitioners are doing up there under Paul's guidance. So it was great to have him back on the podcast um, and it was great to catch up with Paul. So I just wanted to, just before we get into the podcast, just give a, a big thank you to everybody that came out to our networking event at St. James's Park and a big thank you to Dawn Scott as well for presenting. It was a great evening, some really good discussions, um, great to see some familiar faces, but also some new faces at the events as well. Um, Dawn's presentation is now available to watch back on our community, so if you're not already a community member, go and check that out. Um, top presentation on how her career has progressed, leading up to what is now her current job as Performance Director with Inter Miami. So you can go and check that out. And then just a few dates for your diary, the 9th of December, we are going to be at the City Ground at Nottingham Forest. Um, we've got three presenters at this event. We've got performance physio Mark Devonshire presenting, who's from Forest. We've got Brent Dickinson presenting from Nottingham Forest as well. And then also Simon Brundish from Derby County Ladies as well. So it's set to be a great event. We've already got a few practitioners signed up from Forest, from Forest Ladies, um, and a few other clubs as well based in the area. So come and join us at that event, the 9th of December, 6 till 9 p.m. And then the final event of 2021 is going to be at Salford City's Peninsula Stadium. And we have got Damien Hughes, again, previous guest of the podcast, um, co-host of the High Performance Podcast. Damien's going to be presenting for us. And that is on the 16th of December at Salford City, 6 till 9 p.m., and also with those tickets, you actually get a copy of their book that is out in December as well. So not only do you get to see Damien speak, you also get a copy of uh, Damien and Jake's book as well. So come and join us. Last two events of the year, we're going to be confirming some events for 2022 very shortly. But they're our final two events of the year. Go to footballfitfed.com, click the shop. And you'll be able to get your tickets there. So I hope to see as many of you there as possible at the events. But we'll get into the podcast now. Episode 163 with the Head of Physical Performance at Huddersfield Town, Paul Bauer. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 163. And I'm delighted to welcome back onto the podcast, Head of Physical Performance at Huddersfield Town, Paul Bauer. Paul, how are we doing? How you doing, mate? Nice to see you again. It is, mate. It is. It's been such a long time. I think February mm. 2019, we did that last one. Yeah. Which... Yeah. And now you're, rec now you're recording it. So that's probably not as good for you, your viewers and your listeners. But there you go. I did drop yeah. that on you last minute, didn't I? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> by the way, we, we now do video as well. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's uh, it's been a long time, mate. So I know there's, there's lots of things that have gone on in, in that time. So I want to get straight into it. But just start us off. Let's go through. I know we did it in the previous episode, but let's go through a bit of your background. And then I'm keen to get into some of the changes that have happened in that time as well. Yeah. So I'll go all the way back to probably university when I started, when I started off. So Liverpool, John Moores, 2005 to 2008, BSc in sports science, then straight on to a Master of Research within the same discipline, 2008 till 2009. Um, 
did a bit of dossing around between probably 2009 and 2011, went to Australia, played cricket, um, met my wife, I'm now with, uh, now married to, so that's been a long time. Um, 2011, worked at Yorkshire Cricket for uh, as a strength conditioning intern, so that was like my first um, dig into the world of S&C and sports science and what it meant uh, on a full-time basis. And then secured a job at Barnsley Football Club, like a junior sports scientist in the academy. Then by default, kind of became head of department. Um, then got asked to work for the FA and worked with the men's 16s um, age groups. It's about 2015 now. So that I was fortunate enough to work with um, some really good top footballers and, and win some tournaments there. So I learned about what it took, what it took to win at that, at that moment in my career without really recognising it at the time. Um, then I worked with the women's under 20s, which was again a completely different experience working with women. Uh, and then in 2017, I, I got recruited to work at Huddersfield Town Football Club, where basically I was there as uh, lead academy physical performance coach and oversaw a, a brand new strategy in terms of removing the young players from the academy and just having a, a 17s and a 19s. And then we've added the B team since. And then in, in the summer just gone, I, I was promoted into the role of head of physical performance at the club, um, again by default, um, pers person who had that role role left to, to Pastors New and to a, to a better role fully deserved so I was been lucky enough to kind of keep progressing upwards whether it is by default or by doing a good job other I'll let that other people can decide that but yeah that's kind of been my career to date so it's you know 16 years since I started university say my full-time career is coming up to 10 years it's my 10th season in football so um plodding along nicely and just take us back. So obviously, apart from the obvious of working in the academy and now first team, give us a few key differences in the roles that you've had. Uh, do you mean between like working initially cricket to football and then no, more, or do you more mean within, the club. within the academy to first team? Yeah, the, more club, the, club. the club now. It's a great question, I think you're always developing athletes and I think it's something that I've got a passion for. So I, I, I don't believe that once they're a first team player, you stop developing athletes. I think you can always improve them, whether it be recruit, um, improving the recovery strategies as they're an older player, whether it be improving their ability to tolerate high speed running. There's always an element of the game I think you can add. Um, so that's not really changed. I think the, the biggest difference I find is, is the changing room. And, with young players, you often walk into the changing room as the as the kind of go-to guy. The sports scientist is the go-to guy. Generally, do the schedules or whatever it might be. They're the person people come to. And I think at, at B team or under seventeen, under nineteen level, you walk in and you're the go-to guy. People come to you for advice and help, and you're almost constructing a, a path for them. Whereas at first team level. The, the senior pros in particular, they've already constructed their pathway. They've already done it. So they're actually, they're more set in their ways. So you can't just railroad in and be like, this is how it's got to be today. This is what's going on. You've almost got to mould yourself around what they need individually. So you've got 24 individuals with their own, their own habits and their own backgrounds and their own careers and their own views on performance as well and development. So it's navigating those kind of waters a little bit a little bit slower and a bit safer. I think that's the biggest thing, I've, the biggest difference I've found. And I wouldn't say it's been difficult to navigate. I've certainly had to think about it. I couldn't just bowl into the dressing room, you know, day one and be like, right, it's this today, lads. It was like, there's, there's a lot more to it and fro negotiating them and trying to influence over time. Whereas the youngsters look up to you yeah. almost because they're not there. So you go in and you go, this is, what, this is what's happening. I don't, I don't care if you're not happy. This is what's happening. I think that's probably the main difference. Nothing to do with sports science, really. It's more, more experience and personality. And I know your responsibilities in this time have, have changed a lot as well, because um, we've mm -hmm. spoke about being involved directly with sports science, being involved directly with strength and conditioning. I know you've got other staff mm -hmm. that now mm -hmm. are leading on that. So in terms of your responsibilities, what are the, sort of, what are the key ones now? Is it more like management, management leadership or... Yeah, I'm still a sports scientist, so I still get on the pitch with the players and work with the players every day. And uh, I can't imagine my life not doing that. That's that's kind of my buzz. That's where I get my 
it's where normality is resumed for you know 60 to 90 minutes of, of each day and um, I think generally the biggest change or the biggest thing now is a lot of, lot more management and a lot more leadership so people come to me for decisions or people look to me to be able to implement a strategy um, I probably ask a lot of questions of the staff that I work with what do we think about this what do we think about that often it's crazy ideas and thoughts and they'll tell you yourself that yourself that what's he on about that idea but it's just generating discussion all the time and I think now now I've got the status whether I like it or not people people look to me and that's absolutely fine I think I quite enjoy it and it's yeah it's more leadership and management absorbing a lot of the the things that happen from the head of football or the, or the requests from the head of football, as well as absorbing a lot of the emotion from the first team manager in match day and the way the players respond to wins, losses, draws, travelling away, staying in hotels, all the things that come with first team football. My job's tool must absorb all that and just allow the staff to be able to get on and be specific specialist sports scientists in their kind of little discipline. Have you found that transition though? Because obviously when we talk about leadership and management of other staff, and I know you'd have been doing it um, somewhat in previous roles, but obviously there's more, it sounds like there's more responsibility now in the role that you're in. Like, is that something that you just think you've learned over time, learned from other people? Is it something that you've actively had to go and like research and improve yourself on? Yeah, I, uh, I, think, I, I think I had an element of it within my personality. I always tend to try and push myself towards being at the front, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I've been on a bit of a journey since I started at Huddersfield in terms of my self-awareness and what I'm good and what I'm bad at and what my kind of, how my journey is shaped and the way it's been shaped from how, how I was treated by my parents, whether that be good or bad, how I, how I formed friendships, how I kept friendships, lost friendships, how I, how I was at university. I've been on a bit of a journey. We've got, we've got a, um, some consultant psychologists who come into the club and they do a lot of work with the staff. I think without them, I don't think, uh, without naming names, I don't think I'd probably be where I am now in terms of the the head of, certainly the head job. Um, so I, I believe my self-awareness has improved a lot and I'm now aware of how I react in certain situations. So now I'm in a position where I can improve the way in which I react to a first-team manager going absolutely mental at players or, or myself. I, I can react. I, I just know what, I can know what the feelings I'm going through are and I know how I can deal with them a little bit better. So say that's probably the biggest thing which is crucial isn't it because you don't want the, those um reactions to anything like that to pass on to other staff as well yeah no and I've, I've always been quite an open communicator so I've always talked about how I feel so pe- people sometimes find it difficult I'll walk in and I'll tell everyone exactly how I am whether that be I'm really really happy today I'm absolutely fuming with this situation I'm quite I'm quite upset about this that and the other I'm quite I've always been quite open and I think that helps because it shows a level of vulnerability to people. Uh, not everyone can do it. Not everyone might be as comfortable doing it, but it's a really important trait and something I'm almost trying to do even more now. God, I'm in a situation. I really don't know the answer. Um, I don't think my personality is suited to dealing with this dealing with this situation. Can you help? Mm. And it doesn't matter if that person's a PhD student, an intern, the head of football. It really doesn't matter. It's at that moment, it's opening up and saying, yeah, I'm really stressed today, actually. I can't deal with this situation. These are, this is the, these are the thoughts going through my brain and all the different scenarios. And if I take option A, this will happen. If I take option B, this will happen. Can you think of an option C for me? And then yeah. someone will come up with an alternative and I'll be like, oh, right, I'm going to do that. And then I feel really empowered. I think all the other people feel really empowered as well because I've asked them about something that's nothing to do with them. But also it leaves that open chain of communication and it's a conscious thing now it's a conscious thing and I've learned it from a wife she's a doctor and she's able to go and uh, and she works with you know the sick people the people die Mm. and she's able to come home and talk about football and Carlos Corbran and Lee Bromby and all the people I work with and be like and be like well if you tried doing this if you tried thinking about that way one of your great chances is you're able to open up to people and show that you're, you're upset or show that you're really happy you're you're really good at saying well done and not being embarrassed mm. like you see so be that so she she's been really good for me in that sense as well she's almost like a, a nice filter for me at home she doesn't want to talk about what's gone on at work as well 
Yeah. So to talk about the goings on at a championship football club, I think she finds that quite exciting, which mm. is really, really weird. But we live a really, really weird life. So <laughs> as I'm sure you can imagine. So yeah, that's that, that's that's yeah, it's really important, I think. Really important. There's a lot that comes into that, isn't there? Because self-awareness is massive. Like for you to mm-hmm. have that approach, you have to be very self-aware, um, mm-hmm. open, but also the culture of that environment as well. Like that's obviously an yeah. environment where you can be open. I'm sure there's many others where you probably can't without stating exactly where, but it's yeah. very important. Those factors have to be in line for that to happen, don't they? Yeah, I think I think the head of football deserves a lot of credit for that because he's, he's created a culture where that's becoming normal and himself, he's improved at it and he now talks openly. Um, and by saying I'm self-aware doesn't mean I know all my weaknesses and know all my strengths. I don't think I do. I think... I think I'm constantly evolving, so I'm constantly showing more weaknesses as it is. But I think we're in a position now where I hope and I pray that people can come up to me and, you know, knock on the door and say, listen, I'm really disappointed with how you reacted in that situation. And me not kick up a stink and be like, oh, fucking fucking hell, this, that and the other, excuse my language, but be like, okay, well, I, I reacted in this, I reacted like that for this reason. And they go, oh, I didn't really, re-. and and." It becomes a dialogue. It yeah. becomes a dialogue, and I really hope it is like that, and that's how I want it to be. And if and if it's not, hopefully some of my staff who are listening to this can send me a little WhatsApp after and say you're talking shit. You need to you need to be a little bit more open, but um, I hope not. I hope not. And what about some advice, boss? If if there's people listening to this, like in an academy or even working with a first team that are thinking, well, I I want to end up in a similar sort of role, and that's what I want to push towards. But I know that right now I'm possibly not at that level. But but I want to know the areas that I want to improve on, and I know it's mm-hmm. probably going to be different for every case and every person. But what would be some like key things that you could say, or key traits, key skills that you could say? Right, you need to start thinking about X, Y, and Z. Uh, great question. I've been fortunate enough to be able to tap into performance psychologists at the football club, and allow them to give me a real three sixty view of how I react in certain situations and how my childhood and my education and my kind of young adulthood is shaped through the person I am today. So if you, if, if any young practitioners or any, anybody's listening to this who maybe hasn't gone through that process, I think that's a really powerful one. Mm-hmm. Um, very difficult, very difficult to talk about, you know, some of the emotions you went through as a teenager and how that might be affecting the way in which you react in certain situations now, but it's really therapeutic as well because it's, it's almost opened, it's unlocked to another level of thinking for me mm. to be calmer than anyone who knows, who knew me at, at university. And to the person I'm now, I'm so much calmer. I used to react and be really reactive even two or three years ago, but really reactive, emotional, show my emotion, whereas now I'm, I'm able to just sit absorb the information, write something down, still be annoyed, pissed off, that's absolutely mm. fine, upset, walk away, come back and approach it in a more in a, in a more formal manner or a better way. Not every time, not every time, but certainly improving in that. And that's that's just come from, yeah, the, the people who've been able to help me. So if anyone can tap into a performance psychologist or any, any reading, writing, podcasts around that, then for me, it's an absolute no-brainer. Yeah, brilliant. And I wanted to talk about some of the, because you mentioned before about the changes in terms of academy and also adding the B team. Um, and we've had a little chat before we started about like the situation at the club with some of the amazing work that you guys have done. And it's sort of paying off now. We've got a lot of young players coming into the first team. So um, can we just discuss structure in terms of, mm. of the, like the academy, how that has changed and how you, how that has changed and how you think that's impacted um, what you, you're doing as well? Yeah, so there's there's a real level of confirmation bias as well and almost selection bias that's gone on at the football club. So people need to be aware that I know that that exists. So I've been through the process. I was part, sat around the table when there was five people going, we've got a new strategy, we need to do something different. This is what it's going to be. So of course I'm going to sit there and be like, yeah, it's been decent. Mm. Of course I am, because I, I was one of the five. But effectively we went, we removed all our youth and foundation groups Um and started with an under 17s and an under 19s, which basically what we tried to do is be a little bit different and get people talking about something different, which allowed us to then recruit play or, or have conversations with players who, who might not have been available to us or might not have been thinking about leaving their current club 
So we're able to recruit late developers from Cat1 Academies. So it was done on purpose. Then by doing that, we were then able to build and have a B team, which effectively is a team that's irrespective of age. It's about a team that represents the way Huddersfield Town wants to play and be as a group. Do they necessarily do that as a group of players? Not all the time, but certainly on the pitch, we try and and present that kind of the, the style of play, the willingness to work and run and be a team. So the B, the B team's been building for a while and then now I'm in the first team. I'm able to see all these players underneath and the certain player pathways and, the, and, the, and how the first... Last year, there was a lot of debuts and a lot of young players playing in the first team. The first team struggled. There was actually too many young players. There was too many young players. So actually, when, when the team needed experience, know-how, knowledge, uh, game management, didn't have it. It didn't have it. So these young players had all the ability in the world, technically, physically, tactically. But there's so much more to the game and that's been the biggest learning for me as well as the, that these young players need to understand the game, understand the changing room, understand the pressures, the, the wins, the losses, the draws, the travel, the relentless nature of the championship, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, the, what it takes when a manager changes, you're in favour, then the manager changes and you're out of favour and you're out of the team. All these things young players don't have. So we have to... We've now tried to create this last level where players have to go on loan. They have to. Um, not all, but the majority have to go on loan. And I think last year was an amazing year for the football club in terms of that kind of real sense-making of going, actually, I've got a lot of lot of things right in this process. But yeah, it's championship football. This is relentless. This is a top, top level of football. And these players don't have quite have what it takes. So we need to ensure they go off and play football at the, the last bit. And that might be one, two, three, four loans. Yeah. It might last four years, that process. It might be 25 when they come into our first team. But they will come into our first team if we provide them with the support and the pathway to do so. Mm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Definitely. Yeah. And I was just going to add on to that because obviously it's interesting with you essentially going through that pathway as well, moving from academy to first mm. team. And I'm, I'm sure a mm. lot of players have move through at a similar sort of time mm. as you as well. So when you're seeing them representing the first team and seeing the challenges they're facing at first team level, is there anything you reflect on that maybe you'd switch around in terms of focus in that academy setting if you were to take a step back or um, anything else that you'd be adding in, you know, with with the end in mind? Mm, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I'd like to work backwards from the end and it's something I want to do. I want to go in and speak to the young players about ultimately I'm in the changing room with the first team players and I'm ensuring that those young players don't take their spot. That's my priority because I know if if one of our senior players is performing to the best of their ability, we're going to be winning football matches. So why yeah. would I want a young player who doesn't have the game management and the know-how to be able to take his place? So I'm in a real kind of, I'm in a, a real crossroads where, yeah, of course I want these young players to come in and play the football. Actually, it's not the best thing for our group of players right now because we need our best players, our most experienced players playing well. So that is my priority. So the young lads have to understand that that is the information that has been fed. So they have to be above and beyond. They have to be above and beyond. They have to be the best physically, the best technically, the best tactically, the best culturally. They have to be able to fit into the dressing room. They have to work harder than everyone. They have to make an impact every time they step onto the pitch, socially as well mm. as as football. They have they have to be trusted, and uh, and they might get a two minute cameo, and in that two minute cameo, everything can be nah, nowhere near it. Yeah, nowhere near it, and and that might cameo might happen in training. It might be three consecutive bad passes and the whole group will be like, that player's nowhere near it. And they need to realise it is that cutthroat, it is that ruthless. And it is that is encouraged by the staff who once worked with them to be like, it needs to be disgustingly hard for this young player for him to even get a sniff of training. And that's the biggest thing I learned last year. You know, Walsh, who's gone on to Newcastle now, helped me massively with recognising that. And now this year, I think we've got a really good balance. We've got a, a, a good squad of great lads who work the nuts off. And underneath, you've got this group of B-team players who are pushing, but can't get anywhere near it. Yeah, Can't get anywhere near it at the minute, which is what an unbelievable place to be in because they're so talented and they're so good. So 
now we have to find them the loans. Go out on loan and go be the best player at the, the loan club, irrespective of the level. Whether it's National League, League One, League Two, doesn't matter. Go out, be the best player, and you'll come back and you'll give yourself a better opportunity to break onto the bench. And then it starts again because you might you, now you need to be everything on the bench and warm up properly and do all those things. And then all of a sudden it's, you're in the hotel and late for, they're late for a meeting in a hotel back to square one. Now they get on the pitch, two minutes crowd. Now the crowd, there's the expectation of the crowd. and You can make it, it's, it's constant. Mm. Then it's, can they start and can they perform for 90 minutes? Can they perform for 90 minutes Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday? Can they perform for 90 minutes, five, six, seven, eight games in a row? It, it never ends. Yeah, You don't get in the first team and that's it. You're a first team player. You get in the first team and it gets cranked even more. And that's, if I could go back, well, when I go back now and when I speak to the players, that's what they've got to realise. And it's not for everyone. It is not for everyone that, um, and it's just fil- filtering the players out at the, at the highest, finest level. And sometimes they have to go be released and go play in the National League and do it themselves and work yeah. their way up themselves without the help of people who've helped them initially. If that makes sense. They need they need the the um, the rope cutting. That that's also part of it. That we have to be brave and cut cut ties when we know we should do. Because to get that message across is tough, isn't it? I'm sure some yeah. you'll have one conversation with and they'll switch on to the facts and be like, right, I need to switch yeah. into here. But then others you might have... experience it. That's what I was going to yeah. say. Yeah, yeah, I think it. when you were saying about loans and it might take up to four loans or whatever, essentially that's what you're teaching them, isn't it? Yeah, just do it somewhere. You know, if, uh, if you make a mistake and it costs your team a goal, go do that somewhere else. Like, so it's not Huddersfield Town, that's costing all of us then go, go make that mistake somewhere else how do you re- how do you come come back back from that situation you've given you've gifted a goal can you still win the game can you still make sure make sure it doesn't ever happen again bang mm. that's what the, that's what the loans are for and, and we do that for young players you know we've got Levi Cole from Chelsea now we're doing that for Chelsea mm. we're providing Levi with the experience of the first team dressing room and the culture and the championship and the relentless nature of playing Saturday Tuesday which he'll get when he's a Chelsea starter but it'll be Premier League Champions League. The levels yeah. will have gone up. Yeah. Whereas now it's Championship, Championship. So we're doing that for other clubs and, and it's recognising that. Of course he'll cost us goals. Of course he will. But so do senior players. Everyone makes mistakes. It's For me, it's not the it's not the making a mistake. It's how you react to it. And it's that constantly all the time. React from the mistake and go again. React from the mistake and go again. And the senior players are unbelievable at doing that. That's why they're where they are. Mm-hmm. And that's what the young players have to learn. And you said before about um, focusing on <laughs> development, even when players are getting into the first team. Um, where do you think there's the bit, obviously it's not like a switch, is it, where they go from development to performance, but there's a point in time when results are becoming more important when you get into that first team setting. So yeah. throughout a career, when are we getting to the point where we are just going, right, everything is now solely about results. Development has to take a massive backseat or do we not do that? I think I think the player dictates and the mindset of the player. So sometimes the body dictates. So yeah. if you're a 34-year-old and you've played 400 league games and you give everything every time you go on the pitch and basically your body's broken for three or four days after, you're probably not going to train, are you, for those three or four days? Mm. Excuse me. And that individual plan for that player is about recovery and getting them patched back up, ready to go again. That's not to say that that player doesn't want to be on the pitch every single day playing football. They just recognise they can't anymore. So I think that there comes a point where the, the the schedule actually dictates that actually we need to just recover this player. We need to recover this player. And with them, but, but the development flips. So for me, it, it flips to recovery strategies, more on nutrition, more detail, you know, more stuff about psychology and all that kind of thing, the tactical side of the game, leadership, all these things, communication, all the things that I think it just changes. Yeah. I don't, it's not, oh, we're going on the pitch, we're going in the gym today and we're, we're going to look to improve our deadlift score, our remaining deadlift score, because we know we need stronger hamstrings to sprint quicker. It, it's changed. It's, oh, listen to this podcast because this might give you an insight into another way of thinking. Yeah. I, d- I don't think it stops, it just changes. Yeah, changes. that's probably the best way I can explain it. Um, and I think if most people who work in first team football probably listen to that and probably agree, I, th- I think. 
I think, don't so. think people would disagree. I think people would be like, oh yeah, actually that is it. And, and I've learned that myself. I've, I've learned that this year. Just through the conversations I have with the senior players and how different they are to the, the young lads who are not who are not quite in the team. Mm. Compared to the and then compare those conversations to the one who to the B team players who are trying to get into the squad to train. Three totally different conversations, but all three players in that instance will be trying to improve. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I Relentless. think that's so important, so so important because that's as a practitioner. Then you've got that in mind on where <clears> you fit within the um, process, haven't you? Like you're not going yeah. with the same mindset and treating all players the same. And I'm sure there's going to be older pros that are still working on certain elements that younger lads are working on and vice versa. But overall, like, I think it's a great point. You've got to, you've got to see where you fit, haven't you? Yeah, and I just look at Hoggy's a great example. So he's our club captain. He's 33, I think, now, Hoggy. He's played, just played his 400th career, made his 400th career appearance. He gives everything in training. He gives everything every single day. If that's good enough for him, then it's good enough for everybody else. And the improvements... I've seen in him in terms of his ability to change direction, his his passing, the timing of his runs to receive the ball in midfield. All, he's improving all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just that actually the amount of opportunities he gets to go on the pitch and practice those are reduced because he takes a little bit longer to recover. Mm. That's fine. Doesn't mean he's not developing and improving all the time because because he, he is. Yeah. 100%. So yeah, that's probably as good an answer as I could give. I think on that one. I know I mentioned it at the start, but just a very quick update on our online community because Dawn Scott, the performance director at Inter Miami, previously the Lionesses and the USA national team, her presentation evolving with women's football from our Newcastle United networking event is now available to watch on the community. So you can watch it in full. If you came to the event, you can watch it back. If you weren't able to make the event, you can obviously go and watch the full presentation on the community. Community members, just log in and it's available in the network meeting presentation section of the community. If you're not already a member, the good news is you can get yourself a free month by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab at the top, signing up there. That will give you one month free on the community. After that, it's only £4.99 per month going forward and you get access to Dawn's presentation as well as a load of other presentations and webinars and member discounts available on the community. So go and check it out, footballfitfed.com. Click the community tab, sign up there and get yourself a free month to see what it's all about. Here's part two of the podcast with Paul Bauer. Mate, that's class. Really cool. Um, I didn't know if there was anything else you wanted to touch on in terms of the transition, because we were were talking about the transition from B team to first team, and I know we have covered quite a bit around it, but I didn't know if there was anything else you Mm. wanted to touch on um, yeah, that. I think the only difference, the major, major difference, not the training, is match day. That's the major difference. Um, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough where I've got staff who are able to kind of look after the whole process on match day. So I turn up with the players and I'm able to just concentrate on the, delivering the best warm up and, and the best service to the players during the game. It's quite intense. Whereas I think at academy level, B team level, match days are an extension of a development block or an extension of a training week or, or you know, like a Premier League Cup game that you need to win, but there's 300 people there. It's a bit yeah. different when there's, it's a bit different when there's 28,000 at Bramall Lane away. Mm. So there's that, 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 that's probably the biggest difference. And I've enjoyed it too. I didn't think I'd enjoy it as much as I have, but no, it's been, it's been quite rewarding to, to see if I, I'm able to, to deliver the best that I can deliver for the players on that day. And to see if I can still absorb information and learn on the spot, which I am, because yeah. uh, it is it, that is really really different. Yeah, and that's interesting as well, isn't it? And this is something that I've asked a lot of people before. Is like, and I spoke to someone about it at one of our meetings the other day. Actually, is practitioners fitting into different roles? Like, I believe this is just my personal opinion that some people are more suited to working with academy players, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And some people are more suited mm-hmm. to working with first team. Some can do a bit mm-hmm. of both. But how do we decide? Because the way that salaries are, the way that we generally think about progression, you go from academy to first team. Yeah. Well, you could probably think, and I could probably think of loads of practitioners that are so good at academy level. Why do they need Should to never leave it. Team? Yeah. I, I do believe that ev- everyone would benefit from working within an academy mm. because I, I believe that the academy athlete is more complex than the, than the 
than the senior professional because you you literally every day dealing with psychological growth, physical maturation. You're, you're dealing with it's just an absolute roller coaster of different things, and I think the ability to be able to go into the specifics, the ability to be able to periodize a gym program around what's going on with that individual spotty teenager, is gives you gives you an arsenal of of communication and, and techniques and and the ability to prescribe specific exercises that you probably wouldn't get at first team level because yeah. you probably don't get as many opportunities and it just. For me, I mean, I've worked in academy football for nine years and I'll think about how many sessions I've coached, whether a session be a warm-up, an actual practice, gym, educational, thousands, it's thousands. Mm. It's thousands and thousands of doing it wrong as well, by the way. Probably did it wrong 95% of the time. So for me, the best practitioners that I've seen, bar a few, have, have have had an experience of working with academy players or certainly another sport, there's very, very few who I've seen who just predominantly worked in first-team football mm. and are, like, outstanding. But the flip side to that is if that's all you've done is work in first-team football and you've had a growth mindset, you've got to improve all the time, they're going to excel, aren't they? Because that's all they've practised. Yeah. So they've perfected their craft within that particular domain. I think I think there's, there's loads of examples of those people. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but... My personal experience is, yeah, I've been in an academy for nine years. I got a taste of first-team football last year through the club kind of structure. And now I'm working in the first-team. It's not that much different, but that's because that's how I want it to feel. Yeah. That's how I want it to feel. Um, so, yeah, that, that's, that's probably how I would answer that question. And what do you think are some of the factors that suit you and, like, your personality within that first-team setting? Is it because it's more result? focused or no I love the process I love the process the the organize at the, the kind of high level this is the year um let's break the year down into blocks let's let's target certain things within this block let's let's consider squad rotation at this particular time how do we bring out the best in the players in this particular moment um here's a here's a, uh, a what I'd call a pinch point within the schedule where actually there's going to be no players available because the B team are away at Newcastle so yesterday team were away at Newcastle in the Premier League Cup and we were we basically had no players available for training because there's lads away on, in, on international duty so what can we do within the working week to actually make it so that when we've only got 14 players on the Wednesday when we normally do an 11 v 11 that mm. the the training load of the week for the players has not been impacted and we're still ready to beat West Brom I absolutely yeah. love that and anyone who knows me knows that I love the kind of organisational process and then the, how that then looks on a day-to-day basis and bringing it to life. Yeah, That's kind of like my passion. So I think first team actually allows me to do that more. The academy academy is so messy, particularly at Huddersfield. So many moving parts. You know, there's three squads effectively. So you've got three different schedules and within the three different schedules, you've actually got a start in 11 and non-start. So you've actually got six schedules within a week plus injured players. Mm. So you've probably got so say there's 400 players, which there's normally more, you've got up to 10 different programmes going on per week. And within those 10 programmes, you've probably got players who are looking to put on mass or players who are looking to improve the techniques. So then actually you've got like 20 different programmes going off in a week in the academy. In the yeah. first team, you've got starters and non-starters. Yeah. Effectively. Yeah, there's individual changes within that, but effectively you've got starters, non-starters. And then we've got staff who look after the injured players. So... More time to think, definitely in the first team. More time to think, more time to reflect, more time to plan, more time to look ahead, improve. Less time to coach, affect my craft of coaching on the pitch. That's what I'd say. Yeah, brilliant. No, it's, it's pointing out another key skill, isn't it, in terms of organisation. Um, mm. And if someone is in that academy setting looking to get to first team, obviously it's an important thing for them to consider isn't it that the fact that they have to be yeah, definitely. To ta- take that into consideration yeah it's a learned skill as well mm. I think if he spoke to Nathan Winder who works at Sheffield United now who is my first kind of line manager when I started at Barnsley and if you asked him if I was organized and was going through individual like individual moments within a day and where possible things would go wrong and try and kind of safeguard against it like what you're talking about because I didn't have to do that then yeah it's a learned 
skill through the environment I've been put in where you've got to be organised for this to work. So Huddersfield Town's brought that out of me, so it's a skill, yeah, it's definitely something you've got to learn. Um, but yes, it's important, it's important, 100%. Real. And then to expand it onto the team, <clears throat> Paul, um, do you want to touch on some of the, the research that's being done, the, the approach with some of the PhD students that you guys have got as well? Yeah, so we've got an amazing collaboration with Leeds Beckett, uh, which over the last couple of years has been growing. So I'll try, I'll try and go from the top down effectively. So if I try and name the whole team, then you might get an understanding of how it goes. So there's obviously myself and then I work with Stacey Emmons at the university, who's kind of a lecturer in applied sports science. And we basically said, look, we want to get PhD students in to almost help our workforce because we didn't have enough bodies. That's how it originally started. So effectively now there's me and I kind of speak with Stacey about implementing things and she helps. Then within the first team, you've got Cal Adams, Dan Hughes, who both work with the rehab and the strength conditioning. Jordan Foster, who kind of assists me on the pitch and works with the GPS and provides a lot of information for the, for the coaches and the head of football about training load and trends within our, within our results and stuff like that and our physical performance as a club. And he kind of oversees the GPS strategy. You've then got Luke Dobson, who's the head of academy physical performance, so the, my old job. So he kind of oversees the academy strategy and me and him work you know, side by side, really, to ensure that the whole operation across the club is, is right and not, not one player is missing anything. And we know if players are transitioning up to the first team that they're getting the right periodisation and they might require extra work here. Can we do this drill with them after? Can we work with a first-team coach to increase the amount of back cells and D cells within the session, etc.? So me and Luke do that. And then under Luke, there's Brad Rufus, strength and conditioning coach, Connor Gazard, strength and conditioning coach, uh, Song, who is one of our PhD students, and Josh, who's another one of our PhD students. And they're, working, they're looking at uh, basically training load. So Song's looking at training load within small-sided games and... Josh is looking at kind of the dose response to that. So what happens after you do small-sided games? So they're doing PhDs. And then you've got nutrition. You've got Nessan, who's a consultant from Nessan Costello, who's a consultant from the university, who's in three days a week, I think. And then you've got Ben Samuels, another PhD student, who's looking at nutritional interventions for starters versus non-starters. So you've got quite a lot of staff there. And that's kind yeah. of a team. And we all kind of try and work, work together, but... The university thing effectively is I'm now doing a doctorate as well, a professional doctorate at, at Leeds Beckett, and I'm looking at periodization strategies to, to effectively uh, try and come up with an effective periodization strategy within the football club that maximises every moment on the pitch. That's kind of the end goal. It'll never work. I know that, but we're going to try and have a look and see what we can do to, to improve that. So yeah, the, the applied research effectively comes as we've got these staff members who are embedded in our programme every single day working with our players who are just basically collecting evidence and, and reporting back. It's, an it's been an amazing venture. I think it was really difficult for Josh and Song initially because that's to work on a lot of hours. Josh worked with the first team last year. He's now with the B team. Song just worked with myself in the academy and we were hands on deck delivering all the time. Mm. Whereas this year, we've increased the staffing levels somewhat and actually allowed them to to do their research and be, you know, real applied practitioners with the GPS. So effectively, we've got three GPS practitioners across the club, uh, four strength and conditioning coaches, and, you know, probably three full-time sports scientists, which is what I'd say I am. Uh, football scientists is kind of a new term for it. So, yeah, that's kind of the structure of the club and how the how the applied work, work is basically trying to inform us to, change strategies so actually do we need to load our players differently our non-starters differently earlier on in the week in terms of carbohydrates because they've not played because yeah. we know that this this manager compensates at the end of training every single day for the non-starters so actually do we need to provide them with more calories at the early part of the week but the later part of the week do we need to provide less because the subs mm. or do we still need to prepare them for the worst case scenario of them coming on after five minutes but actually, yeah. how many times does that happen in a year? What's the percentage likelihood of that happening? And actually, do we just mitigate against that risk and treat them as a substitute? And then if they do have to come on, we use almost like emergency strategies to be able to provide them with carbohydrates. 
and that that's kind of the the, the thinking that we're going on now we're trying to really open up I mean, Ness and Ben are talking way more detail I've probably got it I'm probably miles off the mark to be honest but that's how I've interpreted it so it's really really good it's really exciting because we're using applied research to inform practice every day so every day we're making evidence informed decisions it's not we're not using the data to make a decision. We're using the data to inform us, then using our intuition and experience on top of it, plus the feel of the group and all of And then we're, then we're going in with the information and it, you know, it's picking your battles. Yeah. For me, if, if Josh provides me with some information about uh, training load for X players, and I know that I've already had three battles with the manager on that day, Unfortunately, I'm not going in with a fourth battle about a B team player. It just can't yeah. happen. I'm going to have to manage it on the spot and try and do my best to make sure it's right. That's just the way it is. But it doesn't mean I've not absorbed that evidence that he's given me and that evidence isn't there when that player's out on the pitch looking fatigued. It's having awareness. It's there. I know it's there. But actually, Harry Toffolo is more important in this moment because he's our starting left back. Mm-hmm. Or Josh Ruffles is more important because he's, our, he's currently out of the team. He's trying to take Harry's spot and I'm trying to push Josh to be better than Harry. It's it's trying to deal with that all the time. So it's evidence informed, I'd say, rather than evidence led. But it's really? brilliant. I love it. I think it's class. I think it's class. And I'd, I'd urge every single club in the land to try and implement a model like this where they've got people embedded in the programme who are, who are able to deliver a specific specialist. You know, we want SSC coaches, we want analysts, we want coaches, we want everyone to follow this model, I think, because I think if you've got a, a almost like a research and development department within your club, I know Brighton do it brilliantly with Will Abbott, I think if you've got that, you can really expand thinking. Yeah. Go go back to the psychology, you can really expand the minds of the people who work and go, and actually, I'm, I'm able to, I, can we get some data for that? Because I've got a hunch, can, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of that that goes on, me walking into the office and going, I've oh, Something. Can you see if you can see if you can confirm my, my beliefs or or completely myth bust? Yeah, because yeah, sometimes it is a lot of myth busting. Well, a so, lot of that again is is the fact of that environment that you can do that, isn't it? And you can ask those questions and mm-hmm. and be inquisitive, and that's where I'm sure a lot of that a lot of the time will lead to something as well, won't it? It's not just a yeah, a, yeah. The a, class, the, the the big thing is how good the students are. Um, so Con- Connor doing his um, master's uh, song, Josh, Ben, like they're just quality people as well. And they've like, they, they buy into the cultures and values of the football club. That, that is the most important thing is who they are as people. And, you know, without, without them, we'd have suffered last year. Without, without Josh and Song as well, um, and Connor would have, would have really suffered last year, I think, because we, yeah. we were low on staff members and it was a difficult season with all the games and stuff like that. So they deserve a lot of credit for who they are as people, never mind the way in which they deliver, you know, top, top quality work to the players and the staff. Um, so yeah, bit of kudos to them. Class, mate. Some amazing work being done, Paul. And I know we, we spoke before we started recording about um, the numbers of lads you're getting through um, around first team level. So it's showing that it's paying off and these years that you've been involved with the club and everyone else that's done that hard work and obviously shout out to Cal Walsh as well. Um, yeah that are doing some great work it's great to see and it'd be great to see going forward as well with all the extra research and stuff that you guys are doing yeah and look Walsh has been instrumental in, in allowing this to happen first of all he when he took the role last year the kind of head of physical performance he was really open about me coming up and helping with the first team which in itself brave because you don't just go oh yeah just come on the pitch and help like previous structures I've been involved, you almost have to earn your stripes to be able to go out on the pitch and take a first team warm up, which is ridiculous in my eyes. And I yeah. think Walsh thinks the same. And he was like, no, get out there, help. And before you know it, I'm working with the first team, I'm working with the B team, I'm working with the 17s, the 19s, and I'm pick- and I'm learning from him all the time. And then I've been able to transition into the role much more effectively without, without his kind of guidance or his almost like open leadership. I probably probably wouldn't be as confident as I am now in terms of doing the job. So yeah. like massive shout out to him. We still, we still speak often. Um, and I think we share a lot of the same kind of values and same traits and we, we believe a lot of the same things. We disagree on stuff as well, which is, which is normal, but as practitioners go, I think we're very, very similar. So I think it was a night, nice, it was a nice transition for the players. Um, 
and I just I ultimately tried to just carry on his good work yeah didn't want to change anything I think changing what he did would have caused me problems because one I believed in what he did anyway yeah. two I had an influence I had an influence in what he did because we discussed it all the time as a club and three it was really really important that I almost respected the work that he'd done and John Iger before him who you know yeah. John employed Carl and me so you know it's all it all is that's almost a legacy that is the legacy. John Iger came in. He left Walsh in, and Walsh has left myself. And some of the work is all all for there to see, which, which you know, probably the most important thing. And I hope, if and when I leave, someone will carry on the, the work that I've been doing. It's important for people to hear that because there'll be a lot of people going to a similar situation that want to make changes from day one, just for the pure fact of ego and making a stance, isn't there? And like you've yeah, looked at it in a in a in a really different. Yeah, well, definitely, but in the right way, I think. I think if if you believe, like you've obviously questioned the approach and then realised that you, it aligns with what the, the way that you want to work and the way that you think and then dropped your ego and and, and basically ran with it. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go to a discussion that me and a debate me and Walsh used to have a lot was about match velocity sprinting in the warm-up. So match day minus three, our players, match velocity we look to get over. 80 to 90 percent of max velocity two occasions and i used to say i think there should be over 90 percent. i think they should be actually working towards the maximum and cal used to say they only need to be above 80 percent because research has shown that we only need to get the architectural change which comes above 80 percent, and we don't need to push the players to a limit where we might put them at risk and i was like but 80 percent of max is nowhere near max so it's not max as like, whereas you're pushing for 90, 95, you're getting close to top end biomechanics, and that's the bit where they'll pull the hamstring within the game. And mm. two, and we're both right. Mm. We're both right. Only until I came into first team when I realised actually it's quite difficult to get players to run at ninety five percent on a match day minus three because they're actually they're actually self periodizing as well. So actually, I've settled on eighty five. <laughs> that's where I've kind of settled. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to try and push for eighty five because I think it's a compromise between. Without me and him chewing the fat, arguing and having a good conversation over a, over a coffee, I'd have never, ever even thought about that going into first-team football. Yeah. But it's almost like a micro-strategy that I've put in myself and now I've settled on 85% as the, the level that I want my players to hit. And whether they hit it organically within the session or whether they hit it within my warm-up is irrelevant. They just need to hit it. Yeah. They just need to hit it. So... It's not perfect. 100% of the people listening to this going, yeah, you're miles off it. That's fine. But that, that's something that that's our strategy and that's what we hang our hats on and that's what we push for. And then as you go down to the B team, it's 90%. And as you go through to the 17s and 19s, it's 95% because down there we can yeah. risk it. So that's that's the strategy and that's kind of the compromise we came up with. So that's an example of how really minor change to a strategy that actually was built by Cal. So yeah. But it's also the difference in responsibility across that as well, isn't it? And the difference in your role. So beforehand, you'd have probably been the person of giving the information to say, why don't we do this? This this should mm-hmm. be a way that we can tweak things. But then when you sat in your role or Cal's role, obviously when he was there, there's more factors that go into that decision, isn't there? Like what you've just said in terms of getting players mm-hmm. up to that speed and I'm sure there's other yeah, examples the factor, as well. The big, yeah, no, the biggest factor is the attitude of the players, yeah, and their and their experience and their ability to self periodize. That's the biggest thing I've learned. Players know when they're knackered, yeah, and they know how to play the game with a manager to look like they're working the nuts off, but really the the, the bollocks. They know. They also know when they're fresh and they can have a right go, and they yeah. don't give a shit what I'm saying. They're having a right go, so it's players lead it. So I've just got to provide the environment for the players to get what they feel they need to be ready for the Saturday and the, and the session and the, and the warm-ups and everything around that will, will allow that to happen organically. So it's not the, I have to get 20 players beyond 85% in this warm I have to ensure that throughout the day I prime them to be able to do that, but also allow the manager to give them the opportunity within the session and just nudge, nudge, yeah. just nudge. Yeah, just give me a bit more in that little, that little overlap next time in that. Um, passing pattern just give me a little one on that overlap yeah. bang there it is 18, 89% he's, he's accumulated a bit more high speed running perfect and then they play an 11v11 game and they naturally pick it all up anyway so yeah that, that, that's 
that that's it. That's and then we go back to my original podcast talks about corridor corridor coaching as it mm. was named. Like that still exists. That's something I'm don't have my hat on, but that's something I do. I walk walk and talk to the players and and speak to them about things away from classrooms and away from the pitch and try and influence them behind the scenes. That that's still that still happens to this day. That's something something I do. Class. Mate, it's been awesome. I just want to um, wrap it up with some of the quick fires that we, we finished the yeah. podcast with now. So we'll move on to those. First one being, I know you've mentioned a few people already, some of the biggest influences on your career so far. Yeah, ma- massive, massive question. There's loads of people. It's all the people I've worked with, every single one that had an influence on my career, whether it's positive or negative. You go to my parents, to my wife, and then people I work with on a day-to-day basis. So, Cal Walsh, I've mentioned, John Iger, 100% gave me an opportunity to represent my country and took me to Huddersfield Town. Uh, coaches I've worked with, Paul Heckingbottom, Mark Burton at Barnsley, brilliant, brilliant. Dean Whitehead, Mark Hudson at, at Huddersfield, brilliant. Lee Bromby, head of football, who's had, who's had the courage to let an academy member of staff come and lead a, an entire club strategy. He's had the bollocks to do that, so he deserves a lot of credit. There's, there's loads of people, really. Uh, the key, the key influence, key influences on a day to day basis now at the club are the people I work with every day. So, Carlos, uh, Danny Schofield, the, you know all the all the people behind the scenes, and then the the, the guys who work on a day to day basis to make the players better. The, the physical performance coaches, like they're influencing me all the time. That like their job is to influence me. Yeah, that is their job. So I'm always influenced by their train of thinking or the way in which they present information. So. A lot, a lot of people, it's very, very hard to pinpoint a particular person or a particular moment that's had the biggest influence on me and my career. Yeah, brilliant. Psychologists as well, obviously, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, and a great point. And obviously, you've discussed the benefits <clears throat> that you've taken away from that. But yeah, there's definitely mm. something in that as well for everyone listening. Um, next one being, what would you say your best trait is as a practitioner or, or best skill as a practitioner? Difficult question. I wrote down here. Probably ask someone else the answer to this. I'm not <laughs> shall really sure. Sh- <laughs> Walsh should be a good one. Now I'm not really sure, but I would say personally, I think it's my ability to like reflect and understand myself in a particular moment. Uh, I'd say that's probably my my biggest strength. Uh, I wouldn't say it's anything specific on the pitch or with the players. I think everyone's got strengths and weaknesses when it comes to the kind of art of coaching but I think my biggest strength is my ability to reflect I know when I've messed up yeah I know when I've done something I shouldn't have done um so yeah I'd say I'd say probably that but you're probably best asking someone else if I was to ask you that question I know it's a bit of a, a weird one going back in time but on that last podcast we did mm. back when you're in the academy role do you reckon that would have been the same answer no I think I'd have talked about like hard skills of coaching like my ability to work with players or my ability to to influence coaches to periodise training on an intensive day, like some bollocks like that. That doesn't <laughs> no, that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it doesn't exist still. No, no, no. I'd, I'd have been I'd have been really technical, I think, in my response was a, a bit more broad thinking now, a bit weirder, a bit older. Um think a bit differently, I think. No, I think it's Age it's really important. You. Mate, it's really important. No, it's just interesting. Um Final one, I always ask about everyone's approach to CPD, continued learning. Yeah. Like, what's your what's your approach to that? Currently, I'm absolutely nailing the High Performance Podcast with Jay Humphrey Class. and Damien, Damien Hughes. Is it? Absolutely yeah. nailing it. And put it on 1.2 speed and just try and do two or three a day on my yeah. journey. And I travel like 50, 55 minutes to work, so I try and get three in a day. To, to if possible, I'm just nailing that at the moment. Reading books, I've always read books really. I just do like a chapter a night. Um, and I think I think the biggest approach to CPD for me has always been asking people what they think or what they they would do in that situation or their in their experience. So I've worked with a lot of ex players and asked them how they felt in certain scenarios, and that's like unbelievable development. I've not been fortunate enough to play the game to a professional level. So to speak to a, a, an ex-pro about how they felt in that situation and, and try and get them to articulate 
why they felt in that way, which is difficult for, for them to do, I would argue. That has been like massive learning for me. Uh, I'll give Dean Whitehead as an example, played in the Premier League for Stoke. And the question that we asked him was like, do you think people, do you think you were underrated because you played at Stoke in Tony mm. Pulis's team? And he was like, yeah, yeah, thought I was. So like technically really good. We could, could try to get about the pitch, this, that, and the other. But because of the environment he was in, and the four-four-two long ball, long throw-ins, Rory Dilap, yeah. he was associated with being like a bit of a tackler and a runner. Mm. And it really frustrated. And then as you delve into it, it frustrated him. He was like, "Yeah, I actually, probably didn't get the most out of my career because of that." So, like that insight is like invaluable. So, for anyone who's working in sport now, who works with ex-athletes or ex-CEOs of business, whatever, whatever kind of domain you're in, just like ask them how they would deal with that situation or what they felt at that time. It's like really, really powerful. Um, again, it's like you asking me now. What like you, people are able to articulate it when you ask a nice, like a good, open-ended question. Mm. So that's probably my main source of learning. Uh, rather than like listening to a podcast or because it's interactive. When, when you ask a question, it's interactive. You've got to listen, otherwise, what's the point in asking the question? And then you've also got to respond to try and get more more information out of them. Um, and if you ask the question in the right way, you'll get. Shit, shit loads of information there's no one better than there's no one better to tell me what should happen on a recovery day than the players who are the ones yeah. who, they're the ones who are running on the pitch 90 minutes getting on a coach traveling four hours and getting home at three in the morning mm. who am i to tell them they should be reporting at x time yeah it's for them to go no actually we're probably better doing it at this time but you need to understand that the, the non-starters have got to come in and train so we don't want to be leaving while they're still out on the pitch because that looks shit and blah, blah, like players. That's that's as good as you're going to get for professional development. And the best thing about that <clears throat> is everyone's got access to them that are working in football. And then when you're talking about ex-players and ex-pros as well, they're, mm -hmm. they're all over, aren't they? So that everyone's got access somewhere. So that's yeah. a great bit of advice. Yeah, but people in different sports as well, like speaking to, if you speak to a, an ex I don't know, like an ex, you could speak to an ex-cricketer about lifetime away from home yeah, and get loads of nuggets of information about away trips that then present themselves in football. You know, if you spoke to, not that you get an opportunity to speak to an England test player, but they spend like three months away from home. So yeah, like what goes on in a hotel? How do you entertain the players? This is stuff where I want to try and dig a bit deeper. And it almost comes down to networking really, doesn't it? But yeah. It's something I've got to be better at, but there's, there's a million questions that can be answered by people who are already doing it. It's just finding out who they are and being able to get them to articulate it. Class, mate. This has been superb, Paul. It's been great to Oops. catch up. No. And uh, yeah, we're not going to leave it as long for the third one. We need to get you on again. Yeah. A bit yeah. sooner than like two years. <laughs> yeah, just got to make sure something's happened. In the meantime, I'll have nothing to talk about. Mate, I'm sure there will be. I'm sure there will be <laughs> in football. But no, it's been class, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, loads no of takeaways in this one. So I'm sure all listeners will take loads from this. Um, just wanted Thanks to give a little shout invite. out to you on socials. Where's the best place you direct people to? Twitter, at pbowerton. Perfect. Top man, Brilliant. mate. Appreciate Thank you, it. mate. Cheers for the invite. Thanks, Paul. This is one of those podcast episodes that I think I could have probably recorded for a good few hours because speaking to Paul is absolutely class and I can't believe it's been so long since I've had him on the podcast. So I hope you enjoyed the episode because I certainly enjoyed recording it with him. I think we got through loads of great stuff in the episode, but there's, there's still loads we could dive into. So I'm definitely keen to get Paul on again in the future. Um, go and give him a quick follow on Twitter at pbauer10 to number 10 on the end. Um, takeaways on this one, he spoke about always improving players. So regardless of the age of the player, whether working with academy, regardless of whether they're senior pros, they can always improve. And he spoke about that's the key in deciding what your role is with different players and managing the individual. So if it is more of a senior pro, we're we looking more at recovery, we're looking at little tips on nutrition and lifestyle um, possibly sleep, things like that. Whereas academy, we might be looking at a bit more strength development, power development, things like that. So really managing that individual. And he spoke about that being one of the key things in terms of the first team environment as well. Differences to academy is that it becomes very much about managing the individuals, whereas the academy is more of a development 
focus. So we're, we're trying to manage everyone as a whole. Um, generating discussion, a really important area of what we do and obviously why we have our events because I think the more discussions that are held between practitioners in a good open environment where egos are dropped, the better because we come up with um, really good solutions to problems and it can open up some really interesting debates and opinions and experiences between practitioners as well. One thing I wrote down, I wrote, what, wrote one word down, which is easy for me to say, when Paul was speaking, and it was honesty. And I think that's one thing that came across in this podcast, that a lot of the things he spoke about when he was talking about himself and what he had to improve on as a practitioner is that there's a lot of honesty involved and self-reflection. And I think that's a skill that we need to have as coaches or just as people in general um, to, to improve ourselves. And then some of the other stuff that I've, I've got quite a few notes on this one, to be honest, but uh, just one final thing is, the di again, the difference between first team and academy, where we spoke about the first team, the, the need for organisation. So um, if you're a coach or a practitioner that wants to work in that first team environment, but organisation isn't necessarily your strong point, that is definitely an area to try and improve on. And he spoke about the academy being a little bit more messy, um, less organized and uh, I think you get what I mean by that it's not necessarily that things are just all over the show but um, there's a, a little bit more sort of going on a little bit less structure maybe in that academy setting so they were some of my takeaways as always it would be great to hear from the listeners to hear what you took away from the episode so please give the show a share and when you share it don't just share it tag people in on it but also put a little note whether it's on Instagram on the story or whether it's on Twitter or LinkedIn or whatever it is, just put a little note on what you took from it. It's really interesting to hear some of the key takeaways that you take from these episodes because um, it might not always, it's probably not the same as what I take from it, um, but it'd be great to hear what you, you took away from it. And the guests also were keen to hear because obviously they're giving up their time and coming on the podcast. So give them a little bit back by giving a little bit of feedback on what you took away from the podcast, good or bad as well. Um, but as always, big, big thank you for listening to the podcast. It's great um, to speak to all these amazing practitioners and I appreciate everyone's support in, in supporting the show and sharing the show and please continue to do that. And I'll speak to you again next week in episode 164.